Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedes. We're here today on Miranda Warnings with David Soares, the Albany County District Attorney. Welcome, David. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for, thanks for being here with us. David also serves as the president of the District Attorneys Association of the state of New York, which the New York State Bar Association, as you know, has worked closely with over the, over recent years on uh, legislation. Yeah, we absolutely treasure that relationship and the perspective that's offered by practitioners that's doing something other than prosecuting cases has been just very valuable to us. Well, it's always great to get the perspective of law enforcement and the district attorneys, and so we're happy to have you here. You've made some news lately where uh, on December 1st, you indicated that the Albany County District Attorney's Office is no longer going to prosecute anyone uh, possessing up to two ounces of marijuana. Uh, tell us uh, about well, why you made that decision. Well, I think the writing's on the wall uh, as far as the war on pot is concerned, as far as the direction that this state is taking, considering what's happening with our surrounding states uh, to include uh, the country of Canada. And I think based upon all of the information that we have available to us with respect to marijuana and its medicinal value and the number of states, which, which I think is at 29 now, that, uh, that, that have uh, medical marijuana and other states, I think nine, that have, um, that have uh, um, adult use marijuana. Um, I think it's just that time that we started start to really rethink our prosecutions, um, not only with our prosecutions moving forward, but also what are we going to do to remedy uh, the, the harms of those convictions uh, for certain cases with respect to sealing and expungement. And so those are the areas that I think uh, for us we, we wanted to address um, and, and address immediately. And as you mentioned, nine states uh, plus the District of Columbia mm -hmm now permit recreational adult use of marijuana. New York uh, currently is not one of those. New York is not, no. And uh, although we're talking in New York uh, potentially about going in that direction at some point, um, and we'll, we can talk about where we might be with that legislation, but currently it's still, it's still not legal. So how does this work? If you're saying as a district attorney, we're not going to prosecute uh, these offenses, yet it's still illegal in the state, um, what would what would happen if someone is uh, using marijuana? They could still be arrested, yeah, they, right? they can still be arrested, and that's the part that we were we were working very aggressively through our through the media to try to, to, to communicate that to the world, that, listen, just because we're, we're exercising prosecutorial discretion not to prosecute for certain amounts of marijuana, it, it, it's not, we don't get to exercise the discretion of police officers. And so in the state of New York, specifically in Albany County, if a person has, uh, you know, is in possession of marijuana, even, you know, a joint, um, they still can be arrested. We're, we're just declining to prosecute those cases as we feel that uh, our resources could be better spent. And you've indicated that it's up to two ounces of personal uh, 
uh, use of marijuana. How much is two ounces? What can you just well, describe two, that? Well, two, two ounces is is a is a significant amount. I mean, if you've ever seen two ounces of anything, vegetation in a in a small plastic bag, uh, it, it is a significant amount of of uh, marijuana. So, like, how many to, joints would that be? To, right? You know, I'm uh, I haven't been Do in that game, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. Uh, it is it is a significant amount of of personal use, although not the kind of uh, amount that we would believe a person was in possession of for the purposes of selling or right. engaging in any other unlawful transaction, right. or so, even public use. Right? Or, or, You've indicated that if it was public use or uh, somehow selling or. Uh, yes, l- larger quantities that all of that would still be prosecuted. That still, we would still be prosecuting if a person decided to at a Starbucks or at a Burger's Bagel to just uh, whip out a joint and start smoking it. Because you know what, uh, other people, your rights to do certain things end where other people's rights begin. And so the idea that you're you're sharing common space with people, and we don't tolerate cigarette smoke in certain public spaces. And so we don't believe that it would be appropriate for a person to consume marijuana there as well. Right. And of course, district attorney has the prerogative of making a decision as to whether to prosecute Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the laws that are in place. Uh, What kind of, what kind of response have you received from the police departments here in in Albany County with respect to your position? You know, here's the interesting thing about Albany County. I, I believe that, that, Throughout the the decades, Albany has just quickly uh, become one of the most forward-thinking communities, um, law enforcement communities that we have. You know, in not only in the capital district but in upstate New York, they're, they're doing some amazing things, um, as evidenced by the embrace of of lead. Um, which is uh, law enforcement assisted diversion. So, you know, law enforcement, we're, we're thinking about these issues. There's much more of a relationship with uh, the the, uh, the mental health communities, the the addiction communities, and so you know we're we're really the first um, community to be thinking about leveraging our our the resources that our partners are also. Um, uh, that have so the idea that you know we have a new generation of police officers that are hitting the streets in Albany, that when they see one of those chronic sort of crimes, those uh, those those crimes that we call um, uh, quality of life crimes, that are now beginning to think about diversion at that moment as opposed to arresting them, having people sitting in jail, and then we divert them. To me, is is rather extraordinary. So I think the the. The prime had been pumped for this kind of action uh, by, by my office uh, long, long ago. Speaking about the ancillary effect on other issues uh, related to smoking marijuana and also related to crime, you spoke, you testified at the New York State Assembly hearing who was contemplating changing the laws to potentially legalize marijuana. And you talked about uh, calling for a uh, a, a marijuana Marshall Plan uh, for the state of New York. What, what's your uh, position with respect well, to that? I, I authored a I, I authored a small opinion piece on the marijuana that I call the marijuana Marshall Plan because I in, in just thinking about our history when we end wars. Um, usually if what we do at the very end of a war is think about who we've defeated and the communities that we've defeated, and we start thinking about rebuilding them, when we rebuild them and we rebuild those people, we tend not to have other wars. But when we ignore them, 
um, we're just preparing for uh, a, another war. And so my, my frustration and my concern specifically with this is that, okay, um, six months from now, we're going to have people on Wall Street that are going to benefit from the same behavior that we've been prosecuting people on First Street for uh, for decades. And when you say benefit, it's going to be because they're going to they're, they're turn going it into to, a business. They're going to turn lucrative. them into a business. There's going to be enrichment there. And, you know, I don't understand how as a society, as a state, we could move forward morally and say, okay, we're okay with this. And so um, I talk about, you know, having wars where we sidestep the rubble. This is one of those um, cessations of a war should we pass this adult use marijuana that we cannot sidestep the rubble. We have to look at these communities where we've traditionally prosecuted, where you know lives have been damaged uh, due to incarceration in the prison system. Uh, we have to you know address this issue and deal with it head on. Um, and not have a system where some corporation who has all of the manufacturing abilities, uh, can come in and just create a footprint and, by the way, offer scholarships that are pennies on the dollar for these, you know, depressed communities. And so we've really got to deal with this. And we have to deal with it not only from a moral perspective, a social justice perspective, but we also have to think about this in terms of a crime prevention strategy, right? Because the the organization that exists right now in, in the hearts of our communities that are dealing marijuana illegally, if we're not replacing that particular product with opportunity, then what do they have to turn to? They have fentanyl and they have other more dangerous drugs to begin to peddle if they're if they're frozen out of the marijuana economy. So I think that that's a conversation that needs to be had by both prosecutors, um, attorneys of all you know of all practices, but our policymakers in particular. So you're anticipating that if this becomes legalized in New York at some point, maybe maybe not this legislative session, but perhaps soon that you're going to you're you're going to have another problem so you're going to plug one hole of illegality and there there's that that work and that problem is going to move to another area of illegality that perhaps we're not anticipating yet but we need to prepare for and and i think that the the problem the challenge that we have right now is that there's not really enough data out there to be able to say okay this is the collateral consequences of of adult use, you know, recreational marijuana. Uh, I think right now we're starting to see bits of information trickle in from states uh, like Colorado, where uh, despite, you know, adult use recreational uh, legalization, we still have an issue with more African-Americans and people of color being arrested uh, for the same charges that uh, they were arrested prior because some of the provisions that were created in the, in the Colorado statute um, prohibited individuals with criminal histories from participating in the marijuana economy. And you think you think about that and you say, how is that possible when, you know... They know it best. They know it right. best. And this is an illicit economy that has thrived traditionally uh, as a, a, an illicit economy. And the people who were part of this economy were the people we were prosecuting and arresting. And now uh, when we're going to legalize it, um, we're going to ice them out. What do you think they're going to do? And so... I don't have as many concerns, and I and I probably shouldn't have used those words. I mean, I do have uh, usage and roadway safety, which is which is big. Uh, I have concerns about youth, you know, use, and we have to think about that. Um, but what keeps me up at night is, 
you know, the, the, the legislation that will eventually pass in this state and whether or not New York takes the time to do it right. That keeps me up at night. Well, you mentioned roadway uh, safety. And uh, so obviously, even if it's permitted for recreational use, just like alcohol is permitted for recreational use by adults, you still can't drink and drive and you can't be under the influence of marijuana or any other drug and drive. Um, how prevalent do you, do you see the use of marijuana and driving uh, being currently? And it, is that is that is that a, a problem that you think we need to anticipate? Oh, it's fairly prevalent, and um, and you know we prosecute routinely for people who you know are charged with uh, you know driving while ability impaired on on drugs, and so. It's something that we see. Um, it doesn't matter what it is. And as you mentioned with alcohol, I mean, there, there are alcohol is a legal product to consume, except you must be of a certain age and it must be a consumption under a certain context. The same would apply here for marijuana. What is challenging for law enforcement is not having state-of-the-art exams that can be performed. And so our legislature is going to have to address um, our you know, what, what exams are we going to um, uh, perform? What resources are they going to provide to law enforcement so that we can get more drug recognition experts on the force? I mean, again, I think um, for me as a prosecutor, uh, having a much more forward-thinking perspective on the issue, um, I, I would be willing to lend my voice to a whole host of, of initiatives that I think moves the agenda forward specifically for those people who are, you know, living with pain or people who are using the product as an exit from harsher products um, like heroin or, or, or fentanyl addiction. So that that's, I think I can contribute there, but I would expect that our legislatures would also understand um, the possible dangers that this would, would bring about and, and consider funding uh, law enforcement a little more so that we can address these issues and maintain safe roadways. When you're prosecuting for, for example, like a, a DWI, um, you have a breathalyzer test mm -hmm. and that would be fairly conclusive evidence of someone's alcohol content. Is there a similar test or similar no, test that you can have for marijuana? That's the challenge right now is, is searching for the best possible uh, products that are available to us in order to... You wave to, a bag of Cheetos or yeah, something? Well, well, you know, it's like, yeah, the only threat is for the pizza delivery guys that will be out on the, on the roads. But, but uh, you know, the, the active ingredient uh, is absorbed rather quickly uh, in your blood and um, it, the effects of which will be felt, you know, very quickly in your brain without necessary traces being left um, or significant traces being left in your blood. And so... Um, the, the idea of being able to engage in roadway safety and interdiction practices requires us to either have access to your blood uh, very quickly. Um, so you would have to actually, you'd have to take a blood test? Well, you'd have to take a blood test. Right now there are, there are states that are using, uh, you know, the tests that uh, test for, for content and saliva, but that doesn't really give you accurate readings. Uh, okay, and so that would be a challenge. Would, a police, would you be? Would a police officer be able to ask for a blood test if they suspect well, like, a driver has? In the state of New York, it's difficult. Tendencies in the state of New York, it's difficult because blood is considered very intrusive, and therefore it's allowed when there is a, a crash or a personal injury or property damage uh, that would permit you know the officers. But so, also, like, if you were just pulled over because you went over like the the middle line. Um, whereas 
if an officer had a suspicion that you were under the influence of alcohol, you could take a breathalyzer. Not the same necessarily not, with the blood test. Not the same with uh, with with marijuana because um, we would be, we would be relying on more officers. Like for example, today, uh, not every department can afford to have a drug recognition expert on the on the department, and it really costs a lot of money uh, for towns and small villages to send um, an officer out to get that kind of specialized training, and so. What we would be looking for from the law enforcement community um, in our request to the legislature is to provide funding and make sure it's done in an equitable way so it's not an embarrassment of riches for your more affluent communities and still we're leaving you know, river towns uh, and small villages without uh, that kind of expertise. And so it would have to be a significant investment in this state to make sure that we're, we're controlling the roadways. Well, David, you've had a, a very... Uh, interesting career. Uh, you've been Albany County District Attorney, elected first in 2004. Uh, so you've been District Attorney now for uh, 14 years? 14 years, yes. Now, and you have an interesting background. You you came from uh, Cape Verde, an island off of West Africa, and you emigrated here when you were six years old. How Tell us about that experience and how that has shaped your your work as a district attorney. Well, you know, the, one of the most amazing things, and I and I, I'm so proud of my parents and having the background that I have because it it just makes you appreciate the constitution that we have in in our country, and it makes me appreciate our our laws uh, and, and the orderly nature of a of, of a country that transitions power peacefully. Um, but but coming here and um, leaving the islands in 1975 and coming here to uh, the United States, specifically Pawtucket, Rhode Island, best place in the world to, to grow up. I grew up in a neighborhood of of 20-some-odd boys. And then when our friends were over, I mean, the street would swell up to about 40 boys. Um, we played every single game you could possibly play, uh, all of which included blunt drama uh, <laughs> or else it just wasn't fun. Um, I have, That's good preparation. Yeah, it's right? great for preparation for politics, yes. yeah. <laughs> but but uh, great community to grow up in. My parents were both uh, mill workers, and my dad was also a carpenter, very handy. Um, they sacrificed so much for uh, myself and my four siblings. Um, we uh, had the best life there, uh, Red Sox fan, and if you were – if you were in uh, Pawtucket, Rhode Island in the mid-70s, um, your team either had a running back named Franco Harris or Tony Dorsett. And therefore, I can explain, I can justify my Cowboys, uh, my leanings, and I'm not a Patriots fan, can't stand the team. Um, but um, best place in the world to grow up, just a blue-collar town with, uh, with a lot of values and, and tradition. Um, we all had the same concerns, same issues. You know, if we ventured into certain neighborhoods, you're brought back, uh, back onto your neighborhood by the police. Um, you know, you, you deal with the, the, the harassment as kids growing up. Uh, we're rough boys, but you know, um, so my, my attention and draw to law enforcement is really just, you know, this idea that you can learn from a book, uh, understand the the rules of everything and be able to represent people um, and through your work make safer communities. And so this is, I think I was destined to do this from the moment uh, I could, I learned how to say, go Cowboys. 
And so you went to Albany Law School, graduate of Albany Law School, and then you worked as an assistant district attorney in Albany County. Uh, and while you were an assistant district attorney, you told your boss, who was the district attorney at the time, that you were going to you were going to run for district attorney, and this it, was in 2004. Never had any ambition for politics, and quite honestly, I was a fish out of water here in Albany. But, but I, I, and I didn't have any intentions of actually practicing criminal uh, law uh, in law school. I actually intended on practicing business law, uh, communications law, and nor did I ever envision that I would actually be working in, in Albany. Uh, my family had... We, we moved here, and so I was here because I was closer to my family here. And uh, the law school in, in Albany is an amazing place. I mean, it's this little tiny building, and they literally connect uh, students to everything from government to the you know the private sector. And so the school had a lot to offer, and uh, took every advantage of every opportunity there. But I, I literally uh, started out in uh, with an internship at the DA's office from Albany Law School, and uh, I had every intention of just picking up, you know, litigation skills. And my life literally changed when I walked into a, a courthouse in uh, in the city of Albany and saw that everybody in the room on one side of the glass looked exactly like me and, um, and everybody else who was working and processing those cases didn't. And that had a lasting impact on me. And Quite honestly, it's been with me since because um, I grabbed the opportunity to, to, to learn different things and to try to engage in more prevention practice, more restorative justice practice. And the only reason why I actually uh, got into the politics and decided to run for the position was because there was a different philosophy then. It was nothing personal against anybody who happened to be the DA at the time, but I just wanted the opportunity to really take that philosophy and apply it on a macro level in public safety here. And so it's been uh, an, an amazing journey. Um, I've enjoyed uh, every single minute of it. And um, we're, we're once again in this space where the institution is evolving. And so um, I'm very happy to be part of it as well. And of course, when you ran in 2004, you had, I'm going to say what would be a unique philosophy for someone running for district attorney. It wasn't the traditional prosecutorial philosophy necessarily. You ran on a platform of uh, reform of the state's uh, relatively harsh Rockefeller drug laws. You ran on a, a policy of uh, being involved in the community, being involved with the, with the very people that may potentially uh, be arrested and that you may have to potentially uh, uh, be up against mm -hmm. in, in court. Um, in those 14 years, has any part of your philosophy uh, changed or grown or transformed in any way? Oh, I, I would say all of the above. And, and you know, the reason for that is just, um, I will say this, that when I started, I looked specifically in the in the world of prosecutors and, and, and specifically in the world of the district attorney, what can one district attorney do? And the reality is you have a lot of authority and you have a lot of discretion. And so it's just the, it's the exercise of that discretion that can really bring about substantial change, both for individuals as well as for community. And so in that respect, um, I came into to, to office with that 
uh, with that drive and to see where those opportunities existed in the criminal justice system. So with that, we brought in restorative justice practices. We started community accountability boards. We took low-level offenses in Albany um, City Court, and we had those cases um, uh, sent to the restorative justice circles as opposed to prosecution. Uh, that benefited us very well because it allowed for us to then take those resources and create a financial crimes unit where we're taking on high-level white-collar crimes, crimes against senior citizens. And so those philosophies really worked uh, to, to get more out of the system to benefit more people um, outside of the system and also to keep people away. Today, we're applying that same philosophy with, with um, more serious offenses. And let me just, for the record, clear up a few things. Um, a few years ago, we had raised the age, right? And the idea was to take 16 and 17 year olds, put them in a system where there were more um, resources available to them, more uh, treatment, uh, more counseling, things of that nature. What I, the position I took was really out of the experience born out of the Rockefeller movement because the Rockefeller drug law reform movement there was a lot of promises made by elected officials that were going to positively impact on communities of color. And so what it did was it really provided opportunities for sentencing, for certain sentences to qualify. And so there was a sliver of people that benefited and got out of prison as a result of, of those reforms. But when those people came back home, they found those communities relatively you know, unchanged. And so the conditions that existed, the, the poverty, the lack of opportunity that existed in these communities that gave rise to them getting involved in the drug trade, sending them to prison, didn't change in all the time that they spent in prison. And so I, I think what happened was they, they passed the legislation. You know, a lot of people took pictures and a lot of people, you know, got famous and, and loved that, that moment of reform. But they shortchanged the community because they didn't do anything on the reentry side. They didn't have more sealing and expungement opportunities for criminal history. So people who are coming out of prison, you know, we're going right back into prison. And so I've been very cautious about, you know, the, the political um, expediency of reform. Um, you you want to talk about doing things for youth? Okay, put the money in and let's send more kids to family court as opposed to criminal court, but put more money into prevention as well, more after school programs and, and keep these kids off the street so that they're never coming to us and create some kind of, of, of ec uh, economic opportunity for them to earn too and to earn in a meaningful way that sets them up for the future. So I have my issues with, um, with New York's definition of reform. Well, David, I would like to thank you not only for being a guest here on Miranda Warnings, which we greatly appreciate, but to thank you for your service to Albany County as Albany County District Attorney over these last 14 years, for your dedication to the community, for your service to the District Attorney's Association for the State of New York, and also for your uh, working with the New York State Bar Association on uh, many of these uh, these issues, which we all greatly appreciate. So thank you for that. You're very welcome. And thank you for the opportunity to come and just exchange ideas. And I think that the Bar Association does a fantastic job of keeping uh, people who otherwise wouldn't be talking, <laughs> uh, talking. Right. So thank you. Because as you know, we're non nonpartisan and, and uh, open to 
all ideas, and that's really what makes our bar association, the strength of our bar association is the diversity of ideas that we have. We have a feature here on Miranda Warnings called Music Book or Movie. Okay. If there's any music book or movie that you'd like to share that you're either related to this or not related. Uh, that are related to this. Right now, um, uh, my favorite music... Oh God, uh, I, you know, stuff is just so uh, produced, overly produced right now. So I will go back to Earth, Wind, and Fire, and you know, I marvel at the fact that they had thirty people on stage with a wind section. Uh, so lots of Earth, Wind, and Fire, uh, Sly and the Family Stone, the Black Crows. Um, so I, that's. What I'm doing with, um, uh, you know, um, I saw Earth, Wind, and Fire up at SPAC a couple of years back. Great. I think it was just Earth and Wind. I think, <laughs> I think Fire may have passed. <laughs> too too much too much of a they take too much space on the bus. Um, uh, uh, movies. I haven't gotten a chance to really go out and and see a lot of movies. But you know, okay. So I learned how to speak English uh, uh, reading comic books. So course this marvel universe is like candy it annoys my wife so much but uh i uh, i absolutely love it uh books uh i'm in my uh i, I am currently in a phase right now where i believe that uh, the civil war um the civil war is an era that i don't think uh has has been spoken about in the context of African-American history so much. I think there's an entire industry around the Civil War, so they, so we get involved in the blue and gray and all these tours. But the significant history of, of African-Americans, especially the period of Reconstruction, um, and so that's what I'm into right now. A really um, fascinating book on that topic is Ron Chernow's Grant, which uh, talks about not only the Civil War, focuses on Grant's term, which was the crucial time of Reconstruction, mm -hmm. and talks about just how horrendous a period it was. And it's it was really, I think, very enlightening because it's not something that's talked a lot about. For example, in history class, you get to Civil War, and then you move on to the Industrial Age. Yes. And it's it's just it's never covered. Over. And uh, and and the, the the sad part is that it's been reduced to forty acres and a mule. The term, the period of Reconstruction, and part of the the issues that I take, and one of the reasons I refer to the Marshall Plan, is because you know after the Civil War, had we invested in Reconstruction, you know, the the country would be different in terms of race relations, and the the the, the station of of African Americans would be entirely different in this country, but we didn't. We moved away from it and uh, we we buried it. Uh, and so, those are the uh, those are the books right now that draw my attention. Professor David Blight from uh, Yale has got several books on the subject, and he's he's got a podcast too, and he's amazing. Great. Well, thanks so much for sharing with us, David Soares, Albany County District Attorney. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't.